Hello everyone, I'm Frank Garza with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Today, we're bringing you part two of our mini-series with Rhapsody Venture Partners focused on Lean Startup and the hard sciences. And moderating the discussion is our own Lean Startup Company faculty member, Hisham Ibrahim. Our guests are CEO of Cirrus, Jeff Urig, and general partner at Rhapsody Venture Partners, Jason Whaley. And with that, I'll hand things off to Hisham. Thank you, Frank. And thank you, Jeff and Jason, for uh, uh, your time and for agreeing to do this with us. I'm really excited about this uh, mini-series that we're doing, um, learning about how companies in the hard sciences space are applying lean principles. Um, Jeff, why don't you start us off with acquainting us first with what is Cirrus's technology? Yeah, thanks, Jim, and uh, thanks again for having me. I really um, am excited and encouraged by this focus on uh, advanced material technologies and, and how to bring these uh, technologies to market. So uh, for us, and the way we describe it uh, for lay people is that uh, Cirrus technology is inherently focused on reducing the energy requirements to bring materials to market in a, in a final form. And, and for us, that means that, uh, I guess from a technical standpoint, is that we have materials that like to react uh, conveniently at low temperatures uh, without the use or minimal use of solvent water, with, which often contribute to the, the major energy uh, consumption of, of any polymer advanced material technology. So again, if, if you to break down a little bit more for the, for the layperson, me as a layperson, I, I buy stuff. What's, what's the chain between what you provide all the way to things that I interact with in my life? Sure, uh, and Cirrus technology is unique in that we believe it's likely the first brand new monomer platform to be developed and, and likely be brought to market over the last 30 to 40 years. So uh, for the layperson, most people are familiar with things like latex acrylic, uh, that particular material is a material that would go into wall paint. Uh, in fact, the wall paint you buy is a, is a polymer. Uh, it just happens to be dissolved in water. And as you apply it to a wall, uh, that water evaporates and it's left with a, with a polymer formation. Uh, alternatively, most people are probably familiar with superglue. Uh, superglue is, is also a monomer technology. It's similar to the Cirrus technology. And with that particular material, Everyone knows that as soon as it leaves the bottle and is applied to a surface um, or even in the presence of moisture or water, it'll polymerize. So uh, the challenge with uh, each of those respective technologies, uh, the first one being waterborne, so using a lot of energy to transport, uh, store, and apply water. And in the second one, it reacts often very quickly uh, in environments where you don't want it to polymerize if anyone's ever had uh, super glue touching your fingers, you recognize uh, very quickly that it's not often adaptable in, in commercial environments. So our technology really bridges the gap between those uh, particular um, aspects of what's in the market today. So our material is a bit of a hybrid. It cures similarly to cyanoacrylates or super glue, but yet it uh, reduces a lot of the moisture or water or solvent content that exists 
and many of the uh, technologies that you use in, in everyday living. And would I or will I be able to tell a difference in the products that I use? Well, you will uh, absolutely, uh, hopefully not be able to tell the difference. Uh, <laughs> I think that's one of the unique things of trying to sell a new technology is, is often not trying to spend too much time on the technology. Uh, people generally only buy for their own personal reasons. And, and most of those reasons are for convenience or cost. Uh, so for a consumer or a business, uh, they, they need to know that what we're delivering uh, performs very, very well, and it does it at a, at a low cost. Um, no one wants a different performing automotive coating. Everyone likes the automotive coating the way it is today, and that's what we intend to deliver. We intend to deliver the same product with a similar or better performance uh, at, at a more environmentally friendly uh, cost uh, to consumers and to manufacturers. That's great. So it's, it's targeted at the manufacturers um, uh, solving problems and in efficiency, which we're going to learn about in a, in a few minutes. But let's first turn to you, um, Jeff, and acquaint us with yourself, your, your background, um, and what brought you to Cirrus. Yeah, sure. I, and my background is, is um, I, I would say, at its core, my background is focused on intellectual curiosity. So I'm always curious about how things work, uh, how to make products better, how to perform better. And that's really what got me started even um, early on as uh, my background's in chemical engineering, uh, focused on really developing uh, new processes that deliver benefits to customers uh, primarily in an oil refining setting, so working on cost reductions. Uh, but ultimately, uh, after several years, uh, d determined that can make a, a bigger impact, uh, most likely with uh, earlier stage companies. Uh, so I went to uh, business school, and following business school, I've really been spending the last 12 years of my life uh, focused inherently on advanced materials, uh, clean technology, and uh, creating benefits, societal benefits, both uh, with the economy and, and the environment. Uh, so I would say even more specifically to get, I guess, more granular, I, I really enjoy this, uh, this idea or this intersection of how do we take uh, products or, or technology concepts out of a university or, or even within uh, government research labs or even someone's ideas uh, that have historically taken significant amount of time to develop and shortening that time to market and creating great financial returns for investors, uh, often with technologies that would never see the light of day if they're not properly managed and, and brought to the market. And that's what was so exciting to me about Cirrus. It's, uh, it's a company that was founded in 2009, I joined in uh, about 2013. Uh, a lot of the proof of concept work had already been done. Uh, there was an incredible uh, investor uh, uh, syndicate in place along with a really excellent team and, and founders. Uh, but they were really looking for how to uh, solve this issue of, we have this really exciting technology, but it's going to take a lot of time, a lot of money, uh, and all, all the way through to commercialization to create an economic return for the investors. 
So uh, the exciting thing for me was being able to work on that challenge. So how do you take a, a breakthrough technology with long commercial timelines and convert that into a rewarding opportunity for investors? And that's what I've been focused on for the last five years of, of my, my life. Awesome. Can't wait to hear about it. Before we jump into that, um, maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, how you got to know Jeff and, and Cirrus and your relationship and kind of what um, what attracted your attention there? Yeah, so we met uh, Jeff. and So he mentioned that there was a, a great investor syndicate in place at Cirrus. So one of his investors was Doug Cameron, uh, who uh, is a friend and advisor uh, to Rhapsody, and he made the connection to Jeff. Um, and I think if Rhapsody had existed uh, five years ago, we would have loved to have been part of that uh, great investor syndicate. And I think we, we missed out on this one just um, out of the, the timing and, and the way life goes. Uh, but we've uh, gotten uh, through, through that connection over the last few years. And what I love about this story is, yeah, so he joined Sirius five years ago and they have successfully commercialized and sold the company. And if you think about a new CEO coming in, and getting that done in five years, that would be a great Valley. That's the sort of timeline that people associate with, uh, let's say, typical software type startups. And the conventional wisdom is that in these hard science technologies, this really deep uh, technical innovations in chemical engineering, man, it's going to take 10, 15 years and $200 million to prove this product out and get it out to the market and so on and so forth. And Jeff was able to take a different approach to building the company and make it work and create good outcomes for the investors and get a, a technology that has a positive impact on the world out into the market and used. And I think he did it in a way that's repeatable. So the insights that I think we'll learn today are things that other people can take into similar situations and apply in a predictable way, or at least in a way there's principles here that I think can help other people do the same thing. Uh, so that's what got me really excited about um, the relationship we've built with Jeff and, and this conversation. Wonderful. Jeff, let's get to it. Tell us your story. Like what, so you, that it's a big challenge that you took on. Um, what was your strategy? How did you develop your strategy? What was it? And walk us through it. Yeah, I think I think it's one of those um, concepts of you don't really know what you're doing until someone later defines what you're doing, and it just makes sense. And <laughs> one of the things that was so exciting about meeting you and, and being part of this uh, podcast is that we were actually pursuing a lean startup, but as it turns out the lean startup books weren't really written for us and I never read them. Uh, so what we did, I think is actually just good business sense. And one of the things we're trying to convey in today's discussion is that a lot of these concepts are absolutely viable in markets that go beyond software and consumer products. Uh, you really just have to think about uh, what you're doing, uh, what minimum viable products are for your particular market and ultimately how to, to do you market them and sell them uh, such that it's attractive to, to a broad range of different uh, buyers or investors. Uh, for, for us, and that was really kind of the, 
uh, the start of my time in 2013 with Cirrus was really getting back to the basics of what to uh, what do we feel uh, customers and partners are going to care most about uh, a and then b what do we deliver knowing we're on a very fixed and limited budget in a market that often demands a significantly regulate significant regulatory as well as capital expenditures uh, to to deliver products so we immediately came to a pretty rapid conclusion that what we had to do and where we had to spend our money was in developing uh, really this minimal viable sample. So it's, it's not a minimal viable product, it's a sample uh, of materials. And with that uh, material, because it's not software and because we can't change from blue to red or test features and designs, we delivered a product that we communicated had certain benefits. So we communicated it had a benefit of having low solvent. It had a benefit of curing very rapidly. And we had a, a way to store and stabilize that material. Uh, so along with that uh, product or that sample, we also delivered a, a very highly technical package that said more or less, hey, we can't deliver 20 different products to you over the next month, but what we can do is we can communicate, here's the core sample. It does all the things that you like, uh, it cures fast, but tell us what issues we have with, with that particular sample. So the feedback was uh, a broad range of different uh, ideas and opportunities. So for example, people said, I like the product, I like its reactivity, I like it has less solvent, but I don't like the fact that it doesn't, um, it, it's not water soluble and we really need a water soluble product. So then we were able to take that information and say, okay, well, I understand that, but did you know we can go back and actually tailor it to make a water soluble product and deliver that? And uh, in that particular case or many cases like this, uh, we, we were able to generate interest by actually only having one sample. And then we just use that to inform future decisions. And then, you know, once we kind of got momentum and said, yes, there's a lot of people that like this reactivity uh, or this, uh, this solvent content, ultimately people, we got enough information to say, okay, well, people really want, uh, let's say a, a polymer with, a very high hardness. Uh, so once we kind of got to the point, okay, we've heard it 10 times now, people want a sample with high hardness, this one doesn't have that, let's go invest resources to go deliver that, and that, that becomes your next minimum viable sample that we deliver to the market. So um, uh, this is great, Jeff, let me interrupt you for a second. So it sounds like you, you defined your first minimum viable sample, Built into it were some assumptions you had about what outcomes um, customers cared about. Um, you delivered it to a few customers, uh, got feedback that helped either prove or disprove some of these some of these assumptions, and you took that learning and and fed it into the next iteration of uh, of minimum viable sample. Um, who were the people that you delivered to first? How did you identify them? How did you even convince them to evaluate the sample? 
Yeah, that, that's a phenomenal question. That's, uh, that's, that's a, a podcast on itself, but uh, for, for the purpose of today's discussion, we'll try to narrow it down to just a, a few of our, our marketing tools and resources uh, of how we kind of down-selected who should get these samples and, and how do we deliver them. Uh, the, first, I, the first criteria uh, for who we invested time with was uh, mostly people that were intimately focused on intellectual property development. Uh, one of the things that's unique about uh, samples is that it often provides a window for partners to file their own intellectual property. And to some people, they get uh, kind of frightened by that because they don't want people to, to have intellectual property based on their materials. But for us, we actually like that. We like the fact that people want an intellectual property because that generally means that they're very creative thinkers and they're very interested in solving problems. Uh, so for us, those were oftentimes, we would say, the major chemical companies that had a laundry list of patents that... Um, that often had commercially uh, viable products attached to them. Uh, the other, I guess, uh, for us at least, uh, we, we determined kind of this criteria that it was always useful to really gain an understanding of what types of questions people are asking in a first meeting. And oftentimes, if the questions were related to how does this work, uh, how, how does this uh, free radical uh, polymerize? How do you ensure stability? Uh, how do you ensure performance properties? Those are generally people we got along very well with because they were interested in developing the technology further. Uh, and keep in mind, on a limited resource, we couldn't go all the way to commercialization, so we need a lot of help. Uh, oftentimes, the unsuccessful relationships were, were those focused on um, areas of the market that we couldn't control. Uh, for example, people focused on regulatory, um, you know, shipping and logistics. How do, you, how do you handle your HR? How do you handle uh, your structures within your organization? Uh, oftentimes that, that created uh, often a barrier within those organizations. And for us, it just felt like they weren't focusing on, on the potential of the technology and how it could help them solve problems. Got it. What was the nature of those early partnerships? Were there, you know, what was the nature of them, the written agreements that you had in, in place? What, what, what were you expecting of them and what were they expecting of you? Yeah, it's, it's a, a, a concept that's not totally unique or novel, but uh, it's something we've adopted from several different industries. But the, the way that our business model was conceived is that we had something, uh, a sample, that they couldn't get from anyone else in the world. Uh, so that's really what we brought to the table, is we can't get this from anybody else. And for, for them, what they got out of that relationship often was the opportunity to file intellectual property using this material that they, no one else could access uh, from any other source. So uh, they, they got that uh, opportunity to be first to market in what we think is an expanding and growing field. Uh, and for us, and you know, kind of going back to our original concept that we would be eventually sold, 
it, it generated uh, an interest from, a, we knew it would generate interest from potential buyers to say, okay, this is a company that's engaged with market leaders in a broad uh, range of different industries, including adhesives, coatings, inks, resins, composites. Uh, so the more traction we got across more markets and more reputable customers, we knew that would be very attractive to a potential buyer as we, uh, as we look to exit. So Jeff, if I might add a question in there, um, one of the things we often struggle with our, with our portfolio companies is when you get feedback from customers, how, to, how much weight to put on feedback from different customers. And one of the um, metrics that we use to figure out like that is something we should listen to and therefore use that as data to move us in a particular direction is whether is how much skin they put in the game. Are they writing checks to support research or how much in-kind work are they doing? And I wonder how you think about um, interpreting the data or the feedback that you're getting back from customers and, and when and how you try to transition those relationships to uh, revenue producing relationships. Uh, yeah, I think I think first and foremost is uh, our experience is that people and companies are not synonymous uh, in in any way. So, the most important criteria is that we work with great people, and uh, they can be members of any company in the world. Uh, of course, we have a strategic relationship that we publicly announced with BASF. Uh, we think of we think the world of them, and they have a, a great uh, intellectually focused uh, organization. Uh, but but it really comes down to the people. You know, there's people within every single organization that are leaders, they're thought leaders, uh, and there's other people within organizations that you uh, are are primarily there to put up barriers. Uh, so uh, when we talk to our sales and marketing force about uh, how how is someone responding? We try to avoid labeling company names. We never want to say, uh, for example, BASF is not interested. What we want to say is this individual who's a vice president of X at BASF does not have interest. Uh, but BASF has seventy thousand employees. Are, are we are we certain that within those seventy thousand, there's not somebody else interested in the technology? Uh, so that's that's one important concept. I think the other important concept is uh, really kind of this uh, multi-prong approach within the organization. So it's oftentimes not useful to have one person talking to one other person at an organization. In order to have really uh, committed customers, especially in, a, in, in areas complex is what we're trying to develop is that we have relationships at the junior staff level almost on a day-to-day -day basis of okay how's that material performing uh, is there anything you notice that does or does not work how did how can we think about that technically we have a, a sales contact of you know organization and, and market forces we have regulatory contacts that uh, talk about how our materials need to perform uh, in several different uh, toxicological testing and then we have of course myself personally I need to have senior level relationships up to the senior vice president or sometimes higher within these organizations such that when that individual at the junior level goes for a project approval or budgetary approval 
the uh, CTO or senior vice president doesn't say who the heck is serious and why are we spending a bunch of money on this program. So it really does take uh, commitment up and down uh, the, the organizational chart, and that's what makes us uh, a success. Now, um, of course, we're talking about uh, one, one example of a very good relationship, but I'll tell you in rough numbers, let's say over the last five years, Cirrus has sent samples to roughly 150 different partners. Uh, and of those 150 partners, we have roughly 15 uh, joint development agreements. So we have about a 10% conversion rate on minimal viable product or minimum viable sample into a joint development relationship. So you, you have to be relentless. You have to get a lot of samples to a lot of touch points and you have to have to focus on high priority accounts. Yeah, makes sense. Now going back to your um, uh, early partnerships, so you got your feedback from the first iteration, you fed that um, learning into your second uh, iteration of minimum viable sample, um, and then what? <laughs> yeah, I, I think, yeah, it's it's always um, you know in this in our industry and uh, like many industries, it's it's often working uh, together in lockstep. So uh, I won't go into all the different details of everything that needs to come together simultaneously, but there there is a little bit of you know I, I call it faking it till you making it, and uh, this other term uh, which we may talk a little bit about later this aura of inevitability so you know, as you start getting that that confidence and i think confidence is extremely underrated in in startups and organizations is there's just this sense you know whether a, a partner meets me or they meet anybody on our team there's just this confidence that yes you are not wasting your time you're not wasting your time on a product or a concept that's not going to be commercialized uh, so we we really kind of set up our organization so that if you went to our website today, it looks like a, a, a typical commercial chemical company. Uh, if you talk to someone here, they have great credentials and a number of patents to their name. If you ask us a regulatory question, we're not stumped because, oh, we haven't thought about regulatory. Uh, if, we, if someone asks us about our manufacturing and scale-up plan, uh, we were never intending to actually scale up ourselves. We knew that that wasn't a, a good return on uh, investment, but we had a plan. We had engaged uh, engineering firm. We had full design packages that were complete. So every every interaction you had with our company had to reflect a company that was absolutely going to be going to be commercialized. And if they didn't get on the train, that generally would mean for them that they'd be left behind in a very exciting uh, opportunity. Uh, so I, I just kind of, and I, we sort of live and breathe that at every meeting and every discussion of, we are a commercial company, we are going to be there, uh, and you should invest your time and money uh, either in FTEs or in uh, patents or in uh, market development. Um, this is a good time, I think, for us to talk about metrics. I'd love to hear about how you think about metrics. Um, it's a very important topic in the, in the Lean Startup methodology to 
use the right metrics to measure your, your progress, um, uh, depending on the phase you're in and, and, um, and what's most important. Um, obviously in the first iteration, you were focusing on getting customer feedback on the product, on the, on the technology. Um, but how did it evolve from then? How, how do you measure things? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, often a difficult challenge because as everyone knows, incentives matter. And uh, as you set your agenda and your objectives and your KPIs, uh, they need to be focused on you know, what you want your outcome to be. Uh, so I, I think what we first, I guess before getting into the metrics, I think it's important to think about how you set your metrics. And for us, it was generally about how do we create a meaningful exit uh, for our investors, A, but then B, how do we ensure this really awesome technology ultimately gets commercialized and brought to the market? Uh, so once, once we kind of established, hey, these, these are the goals of the company, uh, we want to be bought, we want to be owned by a commercially focused partner, then it became a lot easier to set out and say, how do we make that happen? And for us, it, it really came down to, uh, I would say roughly three metrics. Uh, the first was just relentless focus on intellectual property development. And we set, uh, there's a lot of layers to that. There's invention disclosures, there's uh, filed patents. For us, we actually set a, a goal of issued patents. Uh, I know a lot of people say, well, I just want to get something on file. I want something pending. But we, we generally believe that in order to have a successful exit, these patents need to be issued. Uh, and they need to be issued globally. And we, we spent a lot of time and money focusing on how do we take concepts and ideas and ensure they're protected in China, in Korea, in Japan, in Europe, and in the United States. Uh, so that, that was clearly a metric that we defined and we tracked that every single month. Uh, the second uh, bridge to that is really this customer adoption cycle. Uh, again, understanding that we were likely not going to be uh, sending materials or commercial, uh, commercially sold materials to the market. We, we settled on other metrics that created what we call a, you know, more or less this brand aura of, okay, Cirrus is a, a real company. It has a lot of, of partners that are sophisticated and are spending their time and money uh, to, to work with Cirrus on these important objectives. Uh, so again, kind of peeling the layers back there, you, know, the, you could go on multiple layers. You could say, okay, we talked to this many uh, customers and this many people, and we got a spreadsheet, and I could share with you the spreadsheet. There's probably over a thousand names on it of people we've talked to over the last five years, but again, none of we, we didn't feel that any of that mattered. Uh, the fact that we sent out a sample didn't matter. What really came down to is somebody committed on paper in a joint development relationship that they're going to assign resources. In many cases, they assigned significant dollars uh, to the partnership, and that was the metric that uh, we were most focused on. Uh, and then, you know, the third one, just broadly speaking, was uh, the metric of uh, a team. And uh, it's always a bit cliche, you know, how do you, how do you measure progress meaningfully as a, as a team? 
but for us, it was really around the, the quality hires and you know their their passion uh, for learning and development. And as anyone who's gone through an acquisition knows, a big part of the process, especially for let's say a pre-revenue or a pre-commercial company, is who is your team. Uh, so we we always talked in every single meeting about who have we hired, uh, what is their background, and ultimately when a buyer comes in to do due diligence, they're going to talk to every single team member. That's exactly what happened for us, and they were incredibly impressed with the team, and they felt that, and Paul and Shakabai felt that following the acquisition, there was really no changes required to the team dynamic, and we, we used that as a as a big part of our valuation is, is how's the team assembled and how's it functioning. That's great. Um, Jeff, I want to talk about hypotheses or assumptions that you had that were proven wrong early on before you made a big mistake or a big investment. Do you have one of those? Yeah, uh, sure. The, I, I think the, the one that I think most people are aware of just because of all the, all the press it's getting, and rightfully so, is this area of uh, 3D printing. Uh, 3D printing is a growing area. It's, uh, it's a market that uh, contemplates uh, several different technology alternatives. Uh, it's a market that uh, any VC, especially in our space, understands. I think everyone's got at least one 3D printing investment. So a lot of hype around it, a lot of uh, opportunity, and there's massive potential. So it's very easy for an eight-person board to come to a board meeting and say, hey, Jeff, we just had this great idea for where you should commercialize your first material. It should be in 3D printing. And it's certainly not groundless for our technology. I mean, going back to this kind of super glue example, our materials cure similarly to that can imagine a material coming out of a printer head and polymerizing uh, almost immediately uh, onto uh, the surface, so then being able to build up 3D parts uh, using this type of technology. Uh, we also cure very similarly to some other acrylic-based materials that are used in 3D printing. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, that's a great idea, let's, let's go out, let's uh, talk to some people in the market before we go develop uh, 3D printing uh, inks or materials that we could then go sell the market. So in this particular example, actually one of our board members, Doug Cameron, was previously referenced. His son uh, was working at a 3D printing company. We organized a visit uh, to the company, uh, spent several hours uh, with, with him and uh, really kind of showed us the ropes. And at the end we said, okay, well, great. Well, we'll send you a sample and you'll just put it in this printer and see how it goes. And he's like, basically, are you crazy? Like we've, we've spent tens of millions of dollars developing this printer uh, for a very specific type of ink or, or uh, monomer that we've used. We use lasers, we use uh, different uh, form printing techniques. There is no way in heck we could walk back to our investor and say, hey, uh, we're going to go change our machine design to incorporate the serious material into the next generation printer. So there's, I think that's one of the things that uh, has really burned, I'd say advanced material companies is there's a failure to recognize uh, the, the sunk cost of uh, B2B type industries. 
it's very difficult to walk into, let's say, a General Motors automotive facility and say, hey, we're going to change the paint on your car. And that, again, on paper sounds great uh, for, for us. Uh, a, you reduce the solvent. Uh, we can reduce the cure temperature by roughly 60 degrees C versus the incumbent materials. Uh, we can reduce the, the fan requirements and the ventilation requirements. And oh, by the way, our materials are testing to be a lower toxicity than the uh, incumbent. So what could, what could possibly prevent someone from changing over to our materials? Well, the reason for that is no plant manager in the world is going to shut down their plant to adopt the new technology uh, without some assurance from the company that everything is gonna work exactly as it is today. So that, that sunk cost is often a very difficult challenge as you try to get into business to business markets. Mm-hmm. So we, we learn from that, um, th- those examples, and mm-hmm. we tend to focus now on materials that have uh, shorter uh, regulatory cycles and often do not have large amounts of incumbent infrastructure that, that's already in place. That's a great story. And I think the, the key to that story is when you said, let's go, let's go talk to them first. Let's go pre-sell uh, before building or uh, developing a product specific for 3D, 3D printers. Um, really, really good story. Yeah. Um, now, I, I want to circle back to something you, you referred to earlier, which is the, the aura of inevitability. <laughs> the aura of inevitability. <laughs> inevitability. Um, uh, what's that about? Yeah, this is, this is kind of a concept I, I feel like we created. It's... It was always this, um, there's always this self-doubt. And I think it's uh, often inherent in a lot of uh, scientists of, you know, we don't have all the information yet. Uh, We're not certain it's going to work in this particular application. We got a bad data point. I've even seen it go so far as we've gotten three consecutive good data points and somebody wants to go run a fourth test uh, to try to see if they can get a negative result. Uh, there's just so much of that uh, training in, in our university systems and our educational system to let's try to prove where we're wrong here. Um, and we, we try to really change the script internally. And uh, what's most important is that we all believe in ourselves and each other. And we also believe that we have such a highly talented workforce that all of us, I I truly believe this, every employee of Cirrus could very easily get a job somewhere else within about an hour of being on the market. So we've all made a personal commitment to say, this is the most important thing I could be working on. Uh, This is something I wanna spend my life on. And if those things hold true, then undoubtedly this technology is inevitably going to be in the market because we're so highly committed and focused and and being a world leader in this uh, particular technology. Mm. And then that has to translate uh, into into customers and and customer adoption. And the reason that's really important, and again, kind of unlike uh, software, 
where you have, let's say, one customer, okay? It's not a big deal. You can actually have a product that serves one customer. Uh, you can you know, just sell one piece of software. Uh, consumer products, of course, it's, it's a little bit harder, but oftentimes it's very easy to get a toller in, in China or somewhere else to create minimum viable products and sell those at a profit. Everyone's watched Shark Tank, and you know, one of the first questions is, what's your cost position? I'm always stunned to hear we made this part for 62 cents or this product for 62 cents. Uh, chemical technologies are not that way. Uh, they're, they're very much based on economies of scale. Uh, so in order to sell out a plant, um, there's always this sense, especially the first plant, there's always a sense uh, from the industry and our customer base of, okay, who's going to go first? Uh, who is going to be that first customer that raises their hands and says, yeah, I'll take 60% of the plant output. And if everyone feels that no one else is going to be that person, then it's very difficult for uh, individuals within those organizations to say, yeah, we're going to spend time and money uh, on this particular challenge. Uh, so, uh, and, and this is uh, certainly not meant to... Uh, indicate that there's any challenges with the technology. In fact, it's just the opposite. The, the technology really has no risk, uh, the uh, very little uh, risk, I should say. But uh, the bigger challenge is in order to get to uh, cost competitiveness, you have to build at a very large scale. And that large scale often comes with, you know, probably on the order of minimally 10 customers, but more likely 40 or 50 different customers that are all joining together to create the scale, to reduce the cost, to actually bring the product to market. Hmm. Uh, so that's a very important concept. Hmm. Got it. Um, your exit strategy, acquisition, uh, why? Why did you choose acquisition as your exit strategy versus commercializing? Um, and, and continuing on, on, on your own. Why, when, who, how did it come about? And how did you achieve it? Yeah, it's an amazing story. I mean, you, you turned around the company in a very short period of time. Yeah, I, I think everyone's kind of heard the term, the, the curse of knowledge. And, and, and in our case, uh, it wasn't really a curse at all. It was a huge benefit. I had the the great benefit of being in investment banking and, and working at uh, companies whose uh, strategy was, uh, I, I would call it a value maximization strategy. So um, investors had invested in a technology. Uh, they were looking for uh, an exit valuation of let's say nominally a billion dollars, somewhere in that range. Um, oftentimes, at least in our industry, to achieve that type of exit uh, valuation in a, say, a VC window of seven to 10 years from uh, date of investment, the uh, only real way to get to a multiple that allows for that billion dollar plus exit is to uh, build a plant. And so, there's, there's a lot of uh, folks that have taken that approach, um, some successful, uh, some more challenged. Uh, but I, I viewed 
uh, and I, I use this term with with our board, and not not to not to say it couldn't be done. In fact, it's being doing being done right now. But I I always say that strategy is fraught with peril, and uh, the reason I use that term is there's a lot of things that can go wrong that were unanticipated. And those mistakes um, multiply in terms of the cost and timeline to exit. So just fundamentally looking at VCIRR um, and the anticipated returns, that last step, that last step to commercialization is the most capital intensive step. It's often the longest step. And believe it or not, in my opinion, it's also the highest risk step. Uh, because what you often are asking a team to do, and I'll take our team for example, our team is incredibly talented in synthetic organic chemistry, and incredibly talented in material science, uh, analytical chemistry, uh, certainly in market development, uh, intellectual property. There's no talent, um, I guess I would put myself in that category despite being an engineer, but we have no talent on scaling uh, new technologies and uh, that that type of strategy also requires a team adjustment so you'd have to go hire a team uh, you would have to do site selection these are core competencies that uh, I personally don't feel many uh, young companies possess so they have to obtain uh, so the reason to sell or the reason to sell within the window that we had is that we were very successful in our strategy and the very logical next step was to go build a plant. And we had generated enough interest within our partnerships uh, that we felt very confident there'd be a, a, a pretty, I'd say reasonably long list of potential buyers where we didn't feel there was a risk of uh, going out to the market and uh, being in a position where we, we couldn't find any buyers and, and running out of money. So uh, for us, it was pretty low risk to, to exit the company. And uh, again, uh, we think it was the most value creative for the investors. One question I would have, Jeff, if I might, is related to the, the JDA strategy. So when you were developing products early on with companies like BASF, one objection that I've heard from scientific founders a lot is that if you enter into partnerships with big companies. There's some piece of IP that that company now has. Um, you've given away value and now it's gonna be very difficult to sell the company. Um, and people wanna hold on to, to every last penny that they can uh, because they feel like that's what the VCs want and that's what the exit, that's how you maximize the value at the exit. I wonder how you, how did you think about um, structuring JDAs to maintain your ability to exit the company when the time came? Yeah, that, that's an awesome question. I, I, um, I'm very passionate about this particular response because um, I, I feel that the benefits of working with uh, partners, and we did, we did some things to really help us uh, get more confidence, but the benefits of working with these partners far outweigh any possible value accretion uh, scenario of not working with partners. Uh, so yes, you, you definitely give up something, uh, but you also have to know who you are as a company. Um, and I, I think uh, oftentimes there, there's just a, a lack of focus and 
It's, um, it's you know, kind of the chasing the, the shiny object syndrome. It's, you know, it'd be very easy for us, and now that this is published, it'd be very easy for us to have had a conversation in Germany with BASF, and someone at BASF says, wow, these materials would be great for, uh, for coatings, or automotive coatings more specifically. We could have come out of that meeting and said, wow, BASF thinks that there's this great opportunity in automotive uh, coatings. Let's just go do that, because we don't want to share any of that value with, with BASF. Um, we, we didn't think that was uh, a prudent strategy. And, and you know, I, I think it also comes down to, I mentioned who you are as a company. For us, we knew that the value creation event was uh, selling our core materials. So what we really wanted to do is, is sell as much possible product to as many people as we possibly could. Um, and you try to maintain that flexibility uh, within within your agreement so uh, for for all of our agreements and we we put into place these provisions that said hey um, you are you as a partner are going to uh, have great value to us uh, we appreciate that and in return what we're going to allow you to do is file intellectual property where you think our materials could provide a benefit in the market and you can own that downstream intellectual property. Uh, well, all we ask in return is that, well, the best case scenario, and this is often counterintuitive for many people, best case scenario is the partner files the intellectual property, creates a massive disruptive product in the market, and you know, oftentimes that company is, you know, someone like BSF, they're 25% of the market. Uh, so that is an awesome situation to have a 25% market penetration rate with a single customer. That's, that's massively beneficial. If, if that doesn't play out and they decide as a company that, you know what, we tried this, it just doesn't, it doesn't provide a value to us. Um, what we ask in return as part of that joint development agreement is that we get a license back to that IP with rights to sublicense, and um, that, that's very important uh, for us. Is that we we have that uh, in place. It also helps with customer selection because if a customer does not agree to that type of provision, uh, more likely than not, what they're trying to do is block your technology from being adopted, and they're not really uh, mutually invested in the uh, commercialization of the technology. Uh, that that sort of nuts and bolts stuff is fantastic, Jeff. Thank you. I really, really appreciate that answer. And I think there's some real insight in there in terms of the type of relationship you're trying to form with even individual people that you know you're sharing the same goals and being fair with each other uh, and also structuring things in a way that uh, allows you to build the business and gives you some flexibility, uh, but still delivers benefits to the partners. I think that's really great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, Jeff, really, there's just really golden lessons in everything that you've shared with us today. Um, and I, I want to um, end with, given all of these lessons and everything that you've um, learned over the last few years, if there was a single piece of advice that you would offer others in, in the industry, what would that one thing be? Yeah. That... 
the first thing that popped in my mind is to trust yourself. And that's often really hard to do because uh, any, any startup and you know, any company that's really focused on uh, you know, lean principles and uh, trying to do something really hard, uh, almost every day you can find hundreds of people to tell you what you're doing is crazy and that you should give up and that you should stop and you should go do something else else with your life. And um, I have a lot of even trusted mentors that as I was going through certain situations and and as we you know had some you know challenging times as every startup does, there was ample opportunities for, for me to give up. And I always came back to uh, something very simple, which was, I trusted myself, um, A, and B, because I trusted myself and I believed in the technology, uh, there was no way it was going to fail. And you know that, that type of thinking can also be detrimental, uh, but yet if you're honest with yourself and say, yes, this technology absolutely has value, I'm a smart and talented individual, then you should, you should pursue that. Um, and that, that's the advice is don't, don't lay it down because you face a, a bit of adversity. The aura. The aura, yeah. <laughs> it's going to happen, that's right. <laughs> but an honest aura, not a, not a fake aura. Uh, that, that, that's a great point of differentiation. And I, I've had the, uh, I think one of the most fun things about exiting um, and it is doing these uh, types of events and podcasts. Uh, and um, I've had the great luxury of talking to, I'd say within the last year and a half, probably in the order of around 10 different founders, uh, most all of which are kind of in this space, uh, I'd say advanced materials. And there have been uh, some of those founders and, and CEOs that I've, I've been on the other end of that really encouraging them to say, hey, I know this is your baby. I know you developed this uh, during your postdoc. Uh, I know that you think this is the, the, the greatest uh, thing and how you should be spending your life. Uh, but there's ample evidence to, to prove otherwise at this point. And um, so you don't want to go so far as to, to be blind to, to what's staring you in the face. Uh, Jason, at the at the very beginning, you mentioned that you know, the, the approach and the process that Jeff used is, is repeatable. Um, and I'm starting, you know, in, in this mini series, you know, first Hazel and now Cirrus. I'm I'm starting to see some themes um, uh, arise, such as the early partnerships uh, model, which essentially is an adaptation of the lean startup uh, uh, build, measure, learn. Uh, cycle. Um, there are other themes as well, but I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective in closing, um, given your viewpoint, uh, working with, uh, with uh, partnering with many companies, what, what themes are you starting to, to, to hear between the first discussion we had and now the discussion with Jeff? Yeah, I think that point that you just brought out about the early customer interactions and the early partnerships is a great theme for us to, to start with at this point in the series because 
one thing that we hear a lot from scientific founders is that, hey, developing the first product is going to take, you know, $10 million. So let's raise $10 million and develop a product and then we'll go try to sell that. And I think Jeff's experience is the perfect illustration that actually you can go pre-sell or even sell customers with data from the lab or with very small samples that they can evaluate themselves. And in those conversations, the insights and feedback that you get, the objections that you hear, um, can save you so much time and help accelerate your development tremendously because it's that sort of learning from the market that feeds into the product development cycle and keeps you on the right track. I think there's a concept in lean validated learning yeah. that you're really like in the early days when you're in the search mode of trying to find what's the pain point we're going to solve. Your job is to get as much validated learning as possible. And validated learning is based on customer behavior. Um, and you sitting in the lab developing a product is producing zero validated learning, no matter what you do. And it's very possible to take results from experiments or small scale samples and go out into the market and do the market development and get validated learning from customers um, without raising a lot of money and advance your knowledge of the business and your knowledge of the market that you're gonna go into. And I think that the tools that you use to do that in this sector are very different from what you might read about in the lean startup. Like you're not doing cohort analyses because there's maybe only five customers in the world. Right. Oligopoly market. Like you can't do a statistically meaningful cohort analysis, but you can get a lot of validated learning from these really deep conversations. I think that that's the first theme I would pick up. Um, that's I think very repeatable and something that people can start doing tomorrow. I think that's a perfect note uh, to end on. Um, again, Jeff, thank you very, very much for sharing your story and sharing these golden lessons um, that I, I think are, are going to be very, very valuable for, um, for people who are going to watch this. Um, thank you again, and best of luck going forward. Um, thank you, and looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Hisham. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, really a lot of fun and uh, um, really looking forward to continuing this conversation. Sounds good. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.